Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Uncensored CMO. Now, if you were listening to recent episodes, you'd have noticed I interviewed Colin Fleming from Salesforce about B2B marketing. It turns out it really captured your imagination and many, many of you work in B2B. And in fact, even those that work in B2C, there's often a B2B element. Now, my next guest has literally written the book on B2B marketing. She is Antonio Wade, and she is the CMO at PwC, one of the biggest professional services companies in the world. So if anyone knows how B2B works, it's going to be her. This is a brilliant conversation. She has so much experience and knowledge about B2B, and her book is tremendously useful if you want to understand the art and science of getting B2B marketing right. Here's my conversation with Antonia. Now, we are talking B2B. I love B2B, and I'm joined by somebody who also loves B2B so much that she's actually written the book on it. Now, um, anyone who's uh, watching, here it is transforming the B2B buyer journey. Um, Antonia Wade, CMO at PwC. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So tell me a bit about your journey to this point. How did you get into B2B and how did you get into you know PwC and the world of professional services? Right. So, I mean, I did a few things in my early career from startup to research to government, but I really kind of found my place, if you will, at Accenture. And I joined there as a consultant and then I moved into their marketing team. And it's a wonderful place to learn your craft if you're a marketer because they're very good at it, very well invested, you really understand the value of marketing. And I did a number of very, very interesting jobs there. And that really kind of got my passion for B2B marketing going. Um, I decided that, um, you know, I really understood and enjoyed working in professional services um, and Accenture is very well organized, very good at marketing, but I wanted to go and learn to do something entirely different. So um, I went to Thomson Reuters, much more of a B2B product company. We might want to come on and talk about the difference between services and products in B2B and an organization where um, they were very immature in terms of their marketing. So I remember saying to my predecessor, you know, can I, can I have a look at the marketing strategy and plan? And we got a list of 400 events and that was kind of all they did. So that was a big transformational lift where we really moved to being able to attribute for every dollar. What would we get back? Where, How should we think about the buyer? Um, and a very different way of working with sales as well as really putting in a great some great technologies into the marketing environment I then, uh, it's quite funny to think now, because at that time I was traveling all around the world. I had this big global job and I was like, I just want to spend some time home with the kids. I'm going to get a more UK-based job. So I got a job with a UK professional services firm called uh, Capita. And of course, then COVID hit. So I could have carried on doing my global job and sat at home, but it's what it was. Um, but that was quite an interesting uh, role. Uh, leading a company that had done a lot of inorganic growth. They'd made lots of acquisitions and bringing all of those brands together into one. And again, putting in the technology to really understand what our marketing was doing for um, our teams. Um, And then onto PwC, where I've been for about two and a half years. The book came about actually because I had a few months between Capita and PwC. And my husband was like, please don't be at home with nothing to do. You're going to drive me insane. So that's where the book started oh, to happen. born in COVID books then. Born oh. <laughs> in a gap between, yeah, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, so I now I'm the global uh, CMO at PwC, um, which is one of the world's most trusted brands. We deliver professional services across assurance, tax, consulting, uh, and deals. Um in my team, we look after, if it's helpful, just to give a bit of a sense of what we look after. So we look after the um, strategy, messaging and governance uh, all around the brand. Uh, we have a team that looks at campaigns and content across the big business priorities for PwC. So there's big global campaigns. We look after the sales and marketing requirements into the technology stack. So a lot of work with Salesforce, like your previous guest, uh, and onto the .com as well. And then we have a team that looks at supporting our biggest accounts, which is where a lot of our revenue and growth comes from, and also looks to share best practice from a sort of sales methodology. And we have a marketing academy. So we're trying to upskill uh, marketers and salespeople all around the world. Wow. There's a lot there, isn't there? And we, we're going to get into there. how do you manage it and, and what makes <laughs> successful B2B marketing? My, my, my little connection to, to, to your current employer was uh, my first job, actually, when I was at university, I took a year out, was actually at Coopers and Lybrand in the tax department. Amazing. And very weirdly, why I'm in marketing now goes back to a, a, a chance event where I, I was doing tax returns, which I find funny now because I hate doing tax returns. I'm just, I've got an image I of like, myself coming to you with the form. I know, I know. It's, it's, and actually, I, I used to make some extra money at university by doing tax returns for people kind of thing. Anyways, this is a bit the random. hidden side of I John know. Evans that no one else ever no, sees. I know, people are really <laughs> shocked. I did an economics and finance degree. I started a tax department at Coopers and Libraries. 
But um, I was sat opposite this guy and, and uh, I, I was telling him how he could save £10,000 in tax, you know, because I'd worked out. It, it, funny story, actually, I'd worked out that if he spent a weekend outside the UK, he would qualify for less than 180 days in the country and he could save ten grand. So I said, you can go away and have the biggest weekend, you know, imaginable, and I'll save you the tax. Anyway, um, as part of that conversation, I said, a really interesting job. What do you do? And it turns out as a marketing director at a data company called Dun & Bradstreet. And just through that, I was like, Oh, I fancy being on that side of the table. So it's just one of those weird moments in life where I went, how'd you get into the kind of job you do? And then so I left university and decided I'll go into marketing. So oh, wow. there we go. So Cooper's helped me out. Yeah, there we, there, go, we go. there we go. Anyway, so one of the things I think, um, so I've now been doing B2B marketing as well, actually, for the last four years. So it's, it's, it's quite fun to be talking to you about this because um, having done B2C for many years, I'm now in the kind of B2B environment comparing between the two. Um, how does B2B and B2C differ, do you think? Because there's this perennial debate about is it different? Is it the same? How do you think it's uh, different or not? Well, I think, first of all, um, lumping B2B into one category is probably not that helpful. It would be a bit like talking about everything in B2C as if it was one monolithic thing. But it, And even if you just take a kind of fairly straightforward division, so you've got B2B products or those uh, types of services where the uh, reason why you're buying it is pretty well defined. It's not a high price point. Um, you know, that is a different type of marketing motion than if you're selling uh, into the services space. And that can be across technology or finance, professional services, where you're really looking at much longer. I mean, these things can take five years sometimes to sell. Um, and then you're usually embarking on a relationship uh, which can last another five to 10 years, perhaps even longer. And so those two mechanics are quite different. And actually, I would say B2B product and more straightforward, cheaper services can be a little feel somewhat like B2C. Those ones which are much more relationship oriented in nature um, tend to be very different. So if we focus on that sort of side, because I think those are the most different from B2C, um, I've talked a little bit about the length of time that it takes to sell and the types of relationships that you're embarking on. And often, particularly if you think about consulting, for example, you and the client are doing things together that neither of you have ever done before. So it's a high trust relationship. It is based on chemistry. It's based on relationship. It's based on uh, feeling like this is the person that I want to do difficult things with. This is the person who I want to entrust my career and livelihood to because I believe that working with this person or this group of people, uh, we can get done the big difficult things that we need to do, which will be the things that mean my company survives or not over the next five years. So the stakes are very high. And so what buyers are looking for is very different than I want to buy a piece of software that costs $100, right? So it's a it's a completely different thing. So when you're looking at that kind of relationship purchase, it starts to feel very different from B2C because it's not about lodging uh, a message into my mind that I can recall for a reasonably inexpensive purchase where there's very little judgment about. You know, it's it's something quite different. Um, and my relationship with a B2C, particularly FMCG brand, might be very, very, like, I might feel a lot of passion around that relationship. But at the end of the day, if that relationship goes for whatever reason, I don't lose my house, I don't lose my job, I don't lose the company. So the stakes are just very, very yeah, different. That, that's that's really powerful, isn't it? Um, it's funny, actually, one of the things I often think as well is that even though I'd say I've worked in B2C all my career, actually... Um, even in B2C, you have a B2B relationship with your customers. I remember doing a doing a, um, a scale-up brand in, in Juice. And uh, actually, I worked out that for me to get availability, to get into all the stores I went to get to, there were no more than 40 people I had to go and sell to. And so even in even in B2C, sometimes there are sort of intermediaries, whether you know, retailers or distributors, where you're actually the number of people you need to reach are very small, but they're very in demand and they're very hard to, you know, very, very hard to reach. So and it's similar for you, isn't it? You know, you've got, you know, very influential people, very time poor, you know, very hard to reach. How do you get to those people? Because I think that's one of the conundrums that you have in B2B, isn't it? Is how do you reach those really difficult to reach people? I think the first thing is it goes a bit to what you're saying, which is I think for a while, for a long time, um, B2B marketers have used B2C metrics as a reason for qu trying to quantify their success, which tend towards volume. And um, it's not a volume game, right? There are some services that you might sell in professional services. There's two, three hundred people in the world that could ever buy it, right? It's a precision game. It's not a volume game. And, you know, I, I sometimes come into teams and they say to me, oh, you know, it's been a great campaign because we've got, I don't know, 70,000 hits on the website, whatever. 
And I'm like, well, I don't really understand how to interpret that data because if your target audience was 75,000, that's pretty good. If your target audience was 7 million, that's pretty poor. If your target audience was 70, which it probably is, it feels like you might have used the wrong channels in terms of accessing your audience and you probably didn't get to them at all. So if you think about a lot of those, particularly in the services space, it is a precision game and it is about then looking at your marketing budget and saying, actually, even with somewhat restrictive marketing budgets, if you actually really look at the size of the target audience you need to get into, your correlation between dollars and individuals is probably much higher than you think it is. Um, and, you know, sometimes we look at B2C budgets and go, oh, we wish that we could have that. But we're just not trying to play the same game. I'm not trying to get in front of 100 million people. I'm trying to get in front of 100. And therefore, you use your dollars in a slightly different way. So in terms of your question now about how do you get in front of them, I mean, you have to really understand them extremely well. And so it's it always interesting to me when I talk to B2B marketers who don't really invest in talking to their clients, listening to their clients, using insights, talking to sales, talking to their own CEOs or CFOs, you know, the, the role of really deeply understanding how what are the things that these people read, how do they engage with each other, at what point do they want to engage with you versus when do you need to use third parties to get your messages in front of them. All of those things are really deeply rooted into insight. And you can be reasonably be precise about that if you get your target addressable market right. But quite often in B2B as well, because we're still learning, you know, you'll go to the organization and say, okay, well, who's this campaign for? And I'll say, everyone in the C-suite not that helpful. You need to force your organization to be precise about who you want to get in front of so you can make your dollars work really hard for you. You remind me of actually, I had a very short freelance career, last about six months, but the most successful thing I did in that little freelance career. That freelance career was when you employed yourself. I'm just going to tell you that. Yes. (laughs) That's your shortest career. (laughs) It was indeed. And it's where I came up with this podcast, actually. That that, that was invented in my little freelance career. Um, But I I just created this very simple presentation called 10 Things No One Knows About a CMO. And um, I I got hired by a number of different agencies to go, tell us about, give us some insight into the CMO. And what I was amazed is how little people actually knew about the CMO job and what they need and how they make decisions and, you know, how they buy things and that kind of thing. So it's fascinating. So I love your insight there. Start with, you know, your target audience and get insight into what they need. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book, and we might come on and talk about it, which is actually it's not. For example, if you're trying to sell something to the CMO, it's probably not the CMO throughout the whole process. At a certain point, their team will get involved and then perhaps procurement and then perhaps finance. And and so you're sh- probably shifting from marketing to the CMO. And at a certain point, they'll then open the door to somebody in their team who will actually then execute the buying decision. And they might come in and out of that. And so it's also about being clear about who is your target addressable market at each point of their process, because it might change. So, for example, when you're thinking about attribution through uh, marketing automation, um, and there's a sort of traditional view that as the um, seniority of the client goes up, you're getting closer to a purchase decision. Actually, in my experience, often it's the other way around. So you pique the interest of a senior person. They then commission somebody in their team to go and do the research and execute against the buying process, fill in the statement of work and the RFP and blah, blah, blah. So actually seeing a um, a decrease in seniority actually is more of a buying signal than an increase. So it's sort of quite interesting. You need to sort of challenge yourself around the conventional ways because you have to really root it into what is the client actually doing versus what does sort of perceived wisdom of seniority telling us. Yeah, you're so right. It's fascinating. The, the most interesting conversation I had when I was doing the, 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 the brief consultancy was basically when you get a brief, the first thing you need to say is to the client is, would you give me 20 minutes of your time to understand the brief a bit better? Because one of the things I, I started my presentation saying, the brief is rarely the actual brief because often it's written to a template. It's often written by someone junior. Things have sometimes changed even between the brief being written and, and, and the submission being made. And um, my top advice is just ask for 20 minutes of the time of your client and just ask some basic questions like, you know, what was the business problem that led to this brief? So you understand the context. How will you make the decision, you know, between the different agencies that are pitching? Um, you know, who decides, you know, because some, sometimes you may never have met the decision maker. Well, how do you get, you know, an excuse to spend time with them? But what surprised me about every agency that I spoke to when I was doing this training, not one of them thought to do that. And they all said the same thing. 
John, we can't possibly phone the clients. I'm like, why? Because actually, you know, what you're doing is saying, you've spent a lot of time on this brief. You're putting a lot of resource behind it. It's a very big decision. It's going to have big impacts, as you were talking about, in terms of like the career. You know, people get fired over getting this stuff wrong, don't they? Or people get promoted out of getting it right. Why wouldn't the client want to spend a bit of time helping you do an even better pitch? Totally. And you might just win it, you know. Let me tell you a funny story. So this is actually in a previous job, not a PwC. Um, and we went to market for agencies to help us with um, some work that we were doing. Um, and the brief was, here's the here are the bios of the people who will make the decision. You have four hours with us and we just have to like you better than everyone else. No way. And the agencies freaked out. Like it was really challenging <laughs> brief for them because at the end of the day, that's probably, I mean, all of these agencies could have done a fabulous job and we could see that. We know the creds, we know what they the work that they've done. But at the end of the day, when you're going to work on something over a period of years where the stakes are as high, as you said, you just have to know that you really like the people you're doing it with and they'll go to bat for you and that they'll deeply understand you and that there's something more than a transactional relationship. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because I know if, if I go back to the, I, I, so I've mostly been in the, the buying side. I'm now in the seller side. It was a bit weird. But anyway, I've mostly been the buyer. And I would say every time I'm on a pitch process... At the end of it, I'll go and look at what was written down in the documents and in the presentations. And it rarely correlates the decision I ended up making. And actually, if I deconstruct my decision, it probably was who do I trust to do the work or do the job that I want to be done. And actually, it's a lot more about whether I feel like I could leave the room and entrust the team that I've just presented to go and deliver for me. And it's rarely about what they say, because most most agencies have the same creds, the same logos on the sheet, the same kind of unique process they go through to get to the answer, you know, the same proof of concept. They've often got the same toolkit because they wouldn't be in the room, right, if you didn't think they could do the job. So actually, I think your chemistry idea is completely spot on. It's interesting. I remember talking to a client actually when I was at Accenture and, uh, you know, there'd been some problem because technology, right? I mean, it's never straightforward technology. And, And I remember talking to him about it and he was like, look, you know, it's tech, right? And we're doing innovative things. We're doing difficult things that have never been done before. So of course, things are going to go wrong. But what I need to know is that when something goes wrong, the person I'm going to like hold my hand out to as we take a jump off the cliff together is the person that I want to be holding hands with at that point. And a person I believe is going to go to bat for me, who's going to go the extra mile, tell me what I need to hear. And those types of things are really important if you're trying to move some of the world's biggest companies to do very difficult, new and innovative things. Now, another thing I know you're you're passionate about is it does come down to the people. And we think, don't we, that B2B is a lot more data-led and B2C is all about emotion and it's much more rational. But actually, you're buying a relationship in a way, aren't you? You're, you're buying trust in, in, in other people. And, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, who you put in the pitch team can be really important. You know, have you understood what the, you know, what the buyers need and, you know, have you, you know, developed relationships that are going to create that trust? That can be so important, can't it? Who's in the room? I mean, what, the way that I think about it, I talk about it a bit in the book is that, you know, when you're in a buying process, you're really operating at three different levels. First of all, you're operating as um, somebody as a representative of your company, right? And so that's where things like purpose and values of the supplier become really important because you want to work with a company that you believe has similar shared values to you. At a second level, you are operating as a functional buyer, right? I mean, there's some things that I need and I am the deep subject matter expert in it and I am in market to buy those things. And then the third level is this sort of human chemistry level because I want to be communicated to and I want to work with people who understand me, get me, who understand what makes me tick. And it's a relationship because you're going to work in a partnership over a number of years which so then it's more but you know some of the more um a bit like as you said first day marriage like those types of things start to matter and so when you're in uh when you're in that actual point of purchase um but actually i would say in the run-up to it as well it's it's very complicated and nuanced it's not it's not straightforward and you never really know whether the buyer is over indexing on being a representative of the company over indexing on being the subject matter expert making the purchase or over indexing on the relationship aspect of it so you have to appeal to all three simultaneously and that's a very very tricky and nuanced game when you're in b2b marketing and sales it really really is and it goes back to your first point about the importance of understanding the customer and asking the questions because the thing that used to drive me insane was when i was being pitched to i often sit through an hour pitch and 50 minutes i'm being talked at right and very rarely am i being asked any questions 
or, or, or what do I think? Or actually, you know, has the brief changed? Or, you know, what's most important to me? And I think the, the art of understanding the customer and really getting out of them what they want. And, you know, is, you know, you know, ask them, you know, is the pitch team the right team? You know, here, I mean, I know you were saying before as well about, you know, here are all the partners in the firm. Which partner would you like to work with? Who's got the particular skills that might, you know, help you in this job? We also uh, looked at some research um, again in the book, which shows that, you know, the Things that companies think that people are looking for in that pitch process versus what people are actually looking for. And quite often, to the point you were making before, you wouldn't be in the room at all if you hadn't proven those things. And yet you're wasting so much of your valuable pitch time on retelling them the things that they A, already know and B, have already made a decision about because you're there. And so, you, you know, to your point about have you maximized that time, which is rare and like don't get very much of it. And how have you thought about really making sure that, yes, you put the right people in, but also that you're talking about the things the buyers really want to hear about rather than let me hear you, let me restate your problem for you and let's show you more creds that you've already looked at because that's why we're here. So all of that stuff becomes quite important. Now, now, now I love this and this is going to connect love in a beautiful way to the chat I had with Colin. So um, you've got um, the attributes that are most important to the customer versus what you might think sort of thing, which is fascinating seeing the difference. But the top three really that. So number one, brand and reputation. It's fast, you know, in terms of that's what's most important, even in a buying, even in a buying situation. You know, ha- having um, a trusted brand, having a well-respected brand, having a brand that people understand and feel like is relevant is incredibly important throughout the whole thing. So you sometimes people make this sort of slightly odd thing about is it brand or is it demand generation? It's like, well, the brand actually is helping you across the whole piece. And if all things being equal and actually even priced to one side – a strong brand will help you in that decision-making point. And I think particularly in B2B because, you know, up to 12 to 15 people can be involved in any one decision. And so the strength of your brand and the way in which your brand resonates with those 15 people at a point at which they're trying to come together and agree something can be massively the defining thing. So this idea that brand is only helpful at the beginning part of the journey is complete, um, complete, uh, completely not true. Um, and actually, I've talked about, you know, the relationship aspect. Some of the clients that professional services companies have will be clients for 5, 10, 15, 20 years sometimes. And so maintaining that brand relevance through that period of time is also pretty important um, because what you don't want to do, because at that point, your competitors are going to come in and start trying to, you know, put in different messages, compete with you in that client environment. So the more connection the buyer or the client feels to your brand, the more loyal they're likely to be. So brands also doing a lot for you once you're actually in the relationship. I mean, I have to say, if I were to pick, so my four years of being in B2B, the number one factor in system one success is brand. And it's been really, really interesting because what I noticed is I assumed I'd be bottom of funnel the whole time, you know, you know, last clicks and, you know, let's buy SEO and all that kind of thing. But I mean, fascinated actually what's really, really worked and paid off is actually building the brand or thought leadership or creating content and being at events and, and, and kind of, you know, PR and reputation building and those kind of things. And what's happened is, you know, we've gone from, in, in our case, gone from sort of having to hustle and try and, you know, sneak in and try and win, a, you know, win, win business to actually people come to us. Because, or if we're in, if we're in the meeting, what shocks me now is everyone's already heard of us. They've already read the books. They've already listened to podcasts. They've already seen the latest research we've done. They've been following us on LinkedIn. And some, some amazingly, some customers are even like apologising, going, "I'm sorry, it's taken us so long to get you in the meeting," sort of thing. And the, you know, what brand does is it changes it from a, you know, transactional trying to, you know, milk every last click to actually having a much better relationship you don't have to discount prices suddenly you know you, you know you're adding value and and you're there as a, you know, a peer rather than as a and this, and this goes back to the point about are you measuring the right things and are you using b2c measures for b2b actually when you look at um, the consulting market for example the higher the degree of kind of salience and relevance that your brand has to the buyer the higher your price premium because people will say yes this brand is worth more than I feel like I'm paying for it. And that's, I mean, that's incredibly important. You know, being able to charge the right price for the right services is absolutely part of what marketing needs to be doing in B2B. And so actually 
because we don't have fixed prices like you do in B2C. And so therefore you are um, that price negotiation and being able to protect your pricing um, is pretty fundamental part of what you're trying to do with your brand marketing yeah, as well. Yeah, I thought about that. That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk about some of the data points. There's fascinating data here, which which also I think um, emphasise the importance of brand. Um, the one killer stat I remember found from your book is 94% of buyers research online before they've had any contact with you as a seller, which is astonishing. That's what 19 in every 20 people are doing the research first. So that suggests, doesn't it, that your digital presence, your website, your LinkedIn profile, your fame building is incredibly important to, to, to influence future buyers. I mean, I was surprised it wasn't 100%, honestly, like today. Yeah, 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 you are. Who are the 6% <laughs> of people really that are just phone you straight away? Like, <laughs> yeah, probably people who like just know you really, really well. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Maybe they're repeat buyers, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, Ex-customers yeah. go, yeah, I'll just give Antonio <laughs> a call, you know. Yeah, yeah and look. There, there is a portion, you know, when you're think, particularly if you're thinking about professional services or some of these kind of higher value services, where a, a, a buyer is trying to decide whether they should do anything at all. So they're looking at macroeconomic trends, they're looking at kind of where they want to compete, they're looking at their own business strategy and trying to say, okay, what do we need to do differently to take advantage of the opportunities in the market or to protect our business against some of the externalities that are happening? What is it that I might need to do? And then they go into pretty early shaping of a business case. Like, okay, I I can see that we might need to think about our supply chains differently or how we resource our, whatever it is, and, and maybe we need to do something. And they start to kind of put together a bit of a hypothesis around that. At all of that period, um, what they don't want to do is incur what a friend of mine calls the debt of obligation by actually going to the supplier directly. Because as soon as you do that, even if you know them really, really well, you're, all, you're kind of implying that you're going to buy something. And actually in B2B, your biggest um, your biggest competitor is always inertia, right? So it was, oh, we've just decided we're not going to do anything. We don't think it's imperative enough yet to do something. Actually, second biggest can often be that the companies think that they can do it themselves. So, so in that whole part of the buyer's thinking process, they don't know that they want to do anything at all. So, of course, they're not going to phone up a seller because they haven't even decided that they're going to do anything. However, your thought leadership and, uh, to some extent, certain types of case studies, the way in which you engage with their peer set, um, the way in which you might position thought pieces in, you know, third-party article, you know, economist, FT, that sort of thing, that starts to shape the way that buyers are thinking about the world. And that shaping of the way that buyers think about the world ultimately will help you. But you can't, it's really hard to get attribution and that's not about clicks. And so there's a whole load of stuff that's happening before they even get to your website. And then once they get onto your website, they're looking for uh, to educate themselves about specific things. They tend to be looking for case studies or it might be that they're not the primary buyer, they're in procurement or in finance, they're supporting the buying process and they just want to learn a bit more about your company on those three levels that I talked about before. So there's a whole world of things that are happening through the digital channels. And what's interesting and nice about that from a B2B marketing perspective is that, you know, when I started in B2B a long time ago, um, the job of marketing really was to support the sales effort, right? And the, uh, the sort of thing was, you know, you would, the buyers would come to sales and you needed to sort of support that process. Now, this huge percentage of things are happening through digital channels um, and those are all channels really that marketing controls. And so suddenly there's a real shift in terms of the insights you can get about what clients are doing. There's a real shift in terms of the types of things that you want to be famous for in the market, how you choose to position your media and paid media and drive people to that. Um, and that's very exciting for B2B marketers, but I'm not sure we've really necessarily already stepped into that role, that privileged role that we now have. That's such an important point. I, I remember even my assistant, one journey, actually, I think when I turned up, I was like, I'm not sure anyone knew what I was here to do. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've got no budget. No one understands what I do. And they're like, oh, John, are you going to design the stand for the trade show? You know, it's it kind of that sort of yeah, thing. It's yeah, like, yeah. no, no, I'm here to create demands, right? And it will take a bit of time. But trust me, you know, we'll get there and, and it will happen. Fortunately, that's what's happening, which is wonderful. But And I think and I think one of the things that I observe and think about and I've talked to some clients about actually, which is how often do you feel like perhaps you probably get the marketing team you deserve? Because if you've underfunded it, you've not set high enough expectations, you've not really invested in the art of the possible, then you probably are going to get people who will design the brochureware for you. But actually, I think it is important for B2B marketers to push, to show their value in a different way. But I also think that the most enlightened uh, companies in the world 
um, make space and room for that. Mm. Um, and, you know, there is still, I think, in the B2B environment, um, you know, B2B marketers trying really, really hard to be able to make that case and show what they could do to be a lever and driver for growth into a pretty unreceptive audience. So like my ask of anyone who's not in marketing would be just try and think a bit differently about what you're asking marketing to do and perhaps allow them a bit of optionality in that. So to show them, like get, let them show you what they could do. Well, I loved your phrase in the book, actually, from uh, cost center to profit center. Yeah. That's really astute. How do you make the case, though? Because I think that's the challenge a lot of people, a lot, the reason a lot of people end up in the sort of bottom of funnel is that they're being asked to get results tomorrow or in the next quarter because then the results come out. Um, a lot of things you're talking about and I'm talking about would be maybe one to three to five years in yeah. terms of having effect. So how do you make the case to look beyond the short term? Well, I mean, so just on your first point, I mean, my absolute philosophy is that marketing should make you money, not cost you money, right? So that's like a going in position. And I would encourage anyone who's in B2B marketing to really think about that. Again, how are you showing that you're making more as opposed to costing money? And that's a very different type of conversation that you'll have. So I guess, uh, and part of the reason why I wrote the book was to start to think about, well, you can use marketing to do different things depending on the buyer. So I talked a little bit about that buyer that's not even in market. They're still shaping a business case, right? Then you've got a portion of people who are actually in market making some choices about who they want to buy. You've actually got the whole pitch bid process that we talked about. Um, and actually, uh, I, as I say in the book, it's a piece of data that says the large uh, professional services type of companies uh, in the main um, – 80% of revenue sits with 20% of the clients. So there's also a job of marketing to do there, both to drive loyalty, but to also expand share of wallet, particularly if you sell a lot of things. Like, are your top clients buying as much of your services as they can? I think that those are five very different things that you can ask marketing to do. And you probably can't ask them to do all of it unless you have a really large budget. And so what I try and talk to execs about is where does the dollar help you the most? And that depends on the financial performance of your company right now and your business strategy. So if you're looking to enter into new markets, if you're trying to move up the strategic curve, which lots of B2B companies are trying to do, then you need to focus on that first area. If you are in a company that's performing poorly and you really just need to get the sales in, you should divert your marketing funding to supporting sales. If you're in a company where a lot of your revenue sits in your biggest clients and you know that and you have a broad set of services and you know that not not many clients are buying a full suite of services that they could, perhaps you'd be better off putting it into more of that kind of account based marketing world. And so then it becomes a strategy conversation and about making choices about the dollar as opposed to tell me what the sales targets are. They've got to make them this quarter. Therefore, we have to back into a marketing that is okay if that's where you want to spend your marketing dollars. But I think you have to open the aperture to what can marketing do to you, do for you, sorry. And I, and I remember having a conversation in a previous company where I said, look, you know, if I get it that you want a lot of support for sales from the marketing dollars, but at a certain level in this company, you know, if you if you need that many millions of dollars to support your sales team, I actually think you've got a sales performance issue, not a marketing performance issue, right? So you think you have to be pretty robust about the choices that the business is making by choosing to put a marketing dollar to support sales as opposed to create future demand or to uh, to create uh, expanded share of wallet in existing clients. It's quite, a, it's quite a challenge that you described because, you know, in most of my experience working with sales teams, and I work quite a lot, is that they shout a lot. They they demand things today, you know, and, and they represent the customer. So there's always, it's always urgent. Oh, the customer needs this. We've got a trade show next week, all that, all that kind of thing. For to say that actually we're going to invest our marketing time in bringing you customers tomorrow, uh, you know, the, although they rationally get it, they're because under pressure to deliver the number in the next quarter. That can be quite a tense conversation to have. Can be, and I think that you know one of the things that I suggest in the book is if you really map out the buyer journey and you do it as a collaborative marketing and sales exercise, and no part of it is 0% sales and 100% marketing, or 100% sales and 0% marketing. So then it's I sort of think about it as like kind of volume does like just different amounts work out like what are marketing and sales doing for the buyer in this part of the buyer's process and how are you helping each other to 
get the buyer to make decisions or to speed up their decisions, that's quite a helpful place to start rather than having this kind of like, I need leads, you know, so this classic paradigm sales going, oh, you know, marketing give me terrible leads and marketing going, we give all these leads and nothing ever happens with them. It's just, you're just focusing on one such narrow part of it. Whereas at least if you just spent a little bit of time mapping out that journey, deciding how you're going to play together within that, so you feel a shared ownership over it, and then make some choices about where you want to put your dollars. But you should base that in performance and strategy, not in sales targets. Now, a super useful framework you come up for in the book, haven't you, to kind of map out the buyer journey. I think you've got five five stages, haven't you? So talk me through what those five stages are, and then let's, let's talk about then how you might market differently in each of them. Yeah, so I start with the uh, horizon scanner. So these are these people who are looking out into the world and going, what are the macroeconomic trends? What are the business trends that mean that I might need to do something differently to how I do things today? And that's a sort of more speculative, there's no brief, there's no business case. It's a. It tends to be a more senior person thinking strategically about what they want to do with their business. We then move to what I call the explorer. So that's the point at which they're going, probably need to do something, but we're not quite sure what. So it's early stage business case development, trying to galvanize support from the organization to be able to put together a business case um, and starting to really formulate what actually is the problem statement that we're going to market with. The third area is hunter. So that's where the problem is reasonably well defined and they're in the market looking to see what types of uh, provider can help them to uh, solve that problem. Um, then the fourth phase is around active buyer. So you're, you're making choices. So that's where you as a supplier are competing with a small set of other people who are offering similar types of services and you're in competition. Um, and then I go into that kind of longer term client or customer uh, where you're marketing to them to drive loyalty or share of wallet over uh, a course of years. The thing that I do talk about in the book as well is that when when the client already has a pretty well-defined problem, they're probably coming in at that hunter stage. They might not be doing the horizon scanner or the explorer. So some people go through the whole journey or some organizations go through this whole journey. Some come in at that point. And even within PwC, for example, if you're buying audit or you're buying tax advice from, like you have a pretty well-defined problem, you know, so you're coming in at that stage versus uh, people who are doing big, complicated transformations or implementing AI into their front office, that they're probably going through the whole the whole piece. So so knowing what your buyer is trying to do, and, and what I try and say in the book is that at each stage, you've probably got a different set of people and they have different information requirements. And your job in marketing and sales is to service the buyer's information requirements. Your job shouldn't be to help the sales team make their target. That makes so much sense. I mean, I mean, even in what we do at System One, I get I get calls from people going, "Help! We've got a crisis. Like we've got some really ba- bad feedback on this ad. Can you help us? Like in the next twenty four hours, tell us if it's any good or not." You know, so that they're, they're coming straight in. And I know exactly what my need is. I need some help now. Come and sort me out. And then we'll have people that I know we'll put an event on for, or we'll read our books. You know, that might become customers in three or four years' time. I mean, one of the things I love about my job is some I I have people coming to us today that I met three or four years ago that or, or that read a book ages ago we, we did a bit of inspiration for their marketing away day or something like that you know so you're absolutely right you know this is where the kind of funnel idea can be a bit awkward as if everybody goes through every stage in the same kind of way in the same kind of process people are bouncing between I, I tell you what one thing that used to really um going back to killer stat points when when i was a cmo client side that used to wind me up senseless was all those cold calls going we can do a great pr or we can we can handle your social media never in the history of ever has anyone actually sent me that cold call at the moment i'm thinking about buying like literally never i mean i've never had that moment going damn it, I was thinking about a new PR agency and then this one popped up, you know what I mean? And it's like, I don't know why the people that send those cold calls don't realise that, you know? It's like most people are not thinking about buying what you're selling. This comes to another killer point, doesn't it? The old 95-5 rule, right? Most people are not in the market today. Well, and even if they are in the market, they're not going to respond in that way. And that's, again, where you've kind of got this B2C uh sort of philosophy applied to B2B, which is, you know, you can predict buying signals and you really can't, particularly if you're going into a procurement group. Like, how can you predict the buying signals of 12 people, some of whom you don't even know who are all important when they're making decisions? It's just not, it's just not realistic. It's not possible. Um, and so that's why, you know, these spray and pray kind of emails where you're like, well, seriously, was not worth the the time it took to yeah, for an AI insane. bot to write it. it. It's just insane. But the... Um, you know, you can't um, 
And there's something also about marketing and sales working together a little bit on where do you hustle. So if somebody knows what they want, you should give them what they want. And you shouldn't try and put them into a long kind of protracted thought leadership exercise. If somebody is looking at thought leadership and thinking speculatively, you shouldn't try and hustle them. And that's, again, you know, I talk in the book about the funnel not being very helpful because that fussle, funnel assumes a hustle the whole way through. And one single person going through a set of linear, rational decisions, and your job is to get them as fast as possible from big volume to small volume. And honestly, like that's very alienating. It feels like a factory, doesn't it? I mean, I, I can never get my head around this whenever I've sat down with people to try and, you know, try to talk me through how to do this. We need to nudge people from that stage to that stage and then from that. I'm like, but what if they don't want to? What yeah. if it isn't, what, <laughs> yeah. like, and you're treating me like this kind of like production line sort of to be nudged along. And eventually it's like a commodity. I'm like, I'm a human being. I have needs. I know, I know what I want, right? Yeah. I might want to jump a stage. Yeah, I might exactly. want to go back a stage. I don't know. Like, it, it's the inhumanity of it that just I find. I can't get my head around that, you know, that approach. And yet often in professional services, it's the humanity that you're selling. Yes. Like our IP is in our people and our, the relationships come from our people. So it's kind of, you know, you're at odds in a marketing environment if you don't understand that. And at the end of the day, the, people, you know, well, the, the buyers are buying your people. Totally. And this is the thing I think no one really understands. People think B2C is all human and emotional and B2B is all rational and data. But B2, it's the other way around, it really. And B2B is so much about, you know, relationships and trust and because you, you as you said you're committing to sometimes years of relationship and putting your reputation at stake it's more human than less human isn't it and yet we treat it like this sausage factory sometimes right and, and that's where i think you know again for some types of services and for some b2b products it it can be a bit more like that sort of B2C, you know you need a fact sheet and you need tech specs and you do need something quite functional and perhaps even in some of the services world you need something quite functional but only for a very short space of time most of the rest of the time you're actually looking for something that feels yeah more human more likable um you know this is something quite interesting there's a brilliant quote that says you know trust is a confident relationship with the unknown right like how do you think about how you're marketing into that because that's what you really are marketing into when you're marketing professional services you marketing yourself as a trusted brand with trustworthy people who will help you to get the result that you want in a difficult ever-changing environment um and so you know that that you know when i know that you would you and i were talking before about you know why do people think b2b is boring and i am honestly shocked because i think about that as that's the job of b2b marketing like how exciting is that how say, interesting. I, I, i'm a convert i would have been the b2b is boring five years ago but i'm converted so uh, i'm i'm definitely on your page i think if you i mean for me it's because of the complexity of so many people involved in the buying cycle with so many different agendas and so many different perceptions of what the, what good looks like it's such an interesting and and over multi years and you know such an interesting you know place to experiment to innovate to try new things like the complexities of human beings just and behavioral science is absolutely rooted into how b2b marketing should work and and so for me i just think well what an exciting opportunity to really try and understand you know how why it is that people are making the decisions that they're making at the pace that they're making them with the constraints that they have and deeply understanding that client environment i think is fascinating so yeah, just now, now, one, now one of the reasons I think people assume it's boring is because the output is often boring. So yeah. I mean, we 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 did this bit of research with the B two B LinkedIn Institute uh, a few years ago, and they asked us to look at the System One database and to pull out all the B two B ads we'd ever tested and rate them. Right, so we got we got this one to five scale where five star is you know fantastic one star means it will have no impact to in other words it created no emotional response from the audience and it's it's predicted not to have any impact on the the brand building potential of that particular brand now in b2c around 50 percent of ads get one star uh so even in b2c there's a job to be done b2b 77 percent of the b2b ads now these are the brand building campaigns it's not like we're picking the direct response we're not picking right. the banner ads we're picking the big you know, showcase, you know, often TV, but certainly audiovisual ads that might play out on YouTube or or LinkedIn themselves. 77% got one star. So it had like left left the audience feeling nothing. Yeah. I mean, look, I think there's a number of reasons why that's going on. Firstly, if I just, just take it out of just the ad part of it, but if you think about you've got to communicate with 
say, 12 people for every client over 15 years. There's a lot of content that's needed to do that. And it's just not possible for human beings to produce that volume and level of content in an interesting way. And some of it is quite functional. So there's there's that that's going on. Like it's just, it's just, there's a big volume. And sometimes I think that the role of advertising isn't well enough really thought about in the context of that. Um, and, you know, it's the same team who are producing the ads, potentially who are also tr- being asked to produce hundreds of pieces of thought leadership and hundreds of product spec sheets and hundreds of case studies. And so it sort of all becomes a bit blended into one. I, I don't know that you always get the best agency creatives if you're in B2B. I still think that there is a little element. You sometimes see it, um, perhaps because you're not going to be doing the can where the ads, perhaps because you don't have the media spend and the sort of fame around it. So I, I do wonder about that sometimes. And I know that there's been a big shift in the agency world, which I really appreciate and applaud to really recognize the fact that actually B2B is an interesting place to be creative. And actually some of these B2B companies have got a lot of money to spend. Um, and then because um, the role of marketing is not always as well understood within businesses as it could, there are the kind of committees on the marketing side. Like there are a lot of people like, oh, let's ask the head of sales and let's ask the head of product and let's ask the CFO. And that's by the time you've really kind of designed by committee, probably you're going to come up with something that's quite vanilla. Or if you've got a very broad set of services and you're not really being very precise about who you want to get in front of. So it's for all the C-suite and we want to sell all of our staff under a brand message. To get any agreement over what that is, is really, really challenging. And so I think that you default to something that's so high level and therefore vanilla. It doesn't really offend anyone, but it's actually not working very well for you either. Makes a lot of sense. I remember Colin saying actually that uh, we don't need to talk about the buttons all the time, you know, <laughs> because from a Salesforce point of view, he said every time they're talking about the creative, it's like we've got, we've got to reveal the new button we've got on the, you know, on the platform kind of thing. Yeah, and like, there are other channels to do that, and they do that brilliantly at Dreamforce, for example. But, um, but yeah, it's about getting that mix of um, it's about getting that mix of what is the ad actually for? What are you trying to inspire in it? Um, I think as well in B two B, you know, often the ads are tailored a bit to recruitment as well. So you have this mixture of ads going out, one of which is about the client problems, but then you're also putting out kind of brand related adverts that are necessarily talking about yourself because you're trying to attract uh, talent. And sometimes I think that those two things kind of become a little bit meshed together so that at a brand level, I often see in the market, I see kind of brand level advertising. There's a little bit about um organizations talking about themselves into the market because that actually is helpful when you're trying to attract talent not so helpful when you're trying to attract attention from your customers but because they kind of work as as they get a lot of interest because you've got all of the people who want to work for you uh, responding to them you sort of don't really realize that they're you're perhaps not using that advert for the right job for the customer. So interesting. A really interesting point that actually we forget the role of actually the the the, the workforce as well, how they feel about it and obviously uh, recruitment role. Uh, really interesting actually, so when we did our analysis for the B2B Institute, looking at all the ads, um, so, you, so we have this kind of standard way of, you know, there are five things you broadly got to do to make a good B2C ad, you know, create emotion, have good characters, you know, have fluency, you know, to make it easy to recognise who you are. Anyway, things like that. And we then looked at the B2B set and went, is it different? Is it the same rules that apply? There was one difference. Purpose came up much more in B2B ads and was much more correlated to effectiveness than in B2C. And interestingly, if you look at it, Peter Field did some work um, a couple of years ago uh, where he's looking at purpose in IPA award-winning campaigns. Overall, they do worse. But interesting, within the data set, there were some interesting clues that actually in a B2B context, it made people feel better about who they were doing business with and the other thing that came out is it made employees feel a lot more proud about the company they're working for. So from an employee engagement and retention and recruitment and the B2B relationship, actually, interestingly, purpose had a much, much bigger role than it has in B2C. Right. And incredibly important, particularly if you're in a people-based business, right? You definitely want your, I mean, our best brand ambassadors are our people. Um, and so having them feel proud and great about being part of PwC, same in any other professional services company. And of course, if your IP is in your people, if people leave, that's problematic on a number of different levels. And we're a very relationship-based business. So we don't want people to leave because they've got great relationships with our clients. On the other side of that, you know, I, I talked before about the three different roles that buyers are playing as a representative of their company, as a kind of functional buyer, and then as a human being. And as a representative of my company, it's very important that the buyer, the the agencies or companies that I choose to work with have a good alignment with 
PwC's values and purpose. Um, and so that's where I think it becomes quite important in B2B because I have to go back or, you know, our clients will have to go back to their boards and go, we chose, you know, supplier X. And if you don't have a great reputation or if there is a misalignment in terms of values, that causes a little bit of questioning about why you made that choice. Now, I'd love to just quickly go through those five things. And I'd love to ask you what the most important thing you think could be in each of those. So let's start with Horizon Scanner. So these are senior people, influential, that might be involved in the, in the uh, decision making of the future. So at that stage, far out senior people, what would be an example of uh, something you could do to reach that, that audience and impact on them? Well, the first thing to know is that they're probably not going to come to your website and look for stuff, right? So really be thoughtful about wh- where are they getting their information from? And that's where some of these really high order publications start to play a role. So if that's your challenge, if that's the market you want to get after, I would think quite carefully about how are you investing in that type of media relationship, almost at the expense of other things? And how are you thinking about creating editorial worthy content um, that can sit uh, in some of those, you know, Bloomberg, Economist, FT type uh, titles, because that's where you want to start putting in interesting points of view. I also think you have to be, you have to hold yourself to really high account for thought leadership. So quite often when I look across the market, really thought leadership, they're sort of thoughts. And you do need to have a really high quality bar. If you want to really like lodge into somebody's brain in an article that they read in a third party that they might remember in two years time, you really have to have something genuinely interesting and new to say. So that that would be how I would think about that group. That's really interesting. I, I, in fact, I was tra- as I was going through your book, I was trying to score myself. Actually, this is quite funny. I'm like, okay, where, where you know, what mark would Antonio give me? Yeah, exactly. I know. So there we go. I've done my homework. But I was thinking in that and one. And how did you score on that one? I, 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 okay, actually. I, so right. I tell you what, I was thinking from a system one point of view, how would I think about it, right? And I, and I, and I was thinking some of the thought leadership we've done, like my colleague Orlando's written a book about how advertising works. We've done work on diversity and how people feel when they see themselves in advertising, things like that, um, or how to win a Super Bowl ad, you know, those kind of things. And the sort of checklist I went through in my mind, it's got to be credible, right? So it's got to fit what you do. Sounds very obvious. It's got to be useful, right? So in the, in this case, we were helping people make sure that, you know, in feeling seen, that when they represent different groups in their advertising, that it connects with the audience and it works, right? So it, it, it makes a connection. Um, topical. So what, what we found is, when you publish things at the right time, so, you know, lots of people are thinking about it, talking about it, or it, so, for example, we're launching an environmental study in COP. Yeah, very obvious, but, you know, we're going to pop up and go, what's advertising's role in changing behaviour to help create a sustainable future, right? So that was another one. Um, and it needs, to dre- it needs to address a widespread and important need of the audience. So not a niche need, but a need that's understood by most of the people that you're trying to talk to. So in this case, you know, is my marketing sustainable? It, does it reflect in the diversity of the audience I want to reach? Those kind of things, you know, sort of things. So that, anyway, that's just kind of what came to my mind. So I, I thought I came out of that chapter relatively okay. So I'm pleased about this one. But let's go to Explorer then. So these are people that are interested uh, in or they have a need, but they don't yet know what it is necessarily. So what would be most important to try and capture that audience? Yeah, so they're sort of trying to define what, if anything, they're, they're going to do about it. Um, and here we see people really uh, talking to their peers a lot, or at least peers out of sector sometimes, and looking at looking for examples of where other companies have done something similar. So they might go to, you know, for example, if you've got alliance relationships, they might go to them. They're really looking to see who else has dealt with this before? How have they thought about it? Am I thinking about it in the right way? Um, actually, consultants, strategy consultants can be very helpful to clients at this part as well. And that's where you see a lot of that consulting work coming in is people going, am I thinking about this in the right way? How have other people thought about it? Other frameworks, other models, other ways in which we should be thinking about it differently? So that's the sort of type of content that they're looking for. Um, sometimes, I mean, if you're in a consulting business, they might come directly to you for that. Um, but otherwise, you know, you can find that making sure that you have well-publicized case studies and creds and approach material can be very helpful there. Yeah. This chapter got me thinking a bit. So I I gave myself a, I wasn't 
totally scoring it. But if I gave myself a score, it'd be middle of it'll be three three star, I think, on this one. I, I think what we do well is we we do like who won the who made the best Christmas ad. And then what I find is is that, you know, we do a ranking table and then lots of people that make Christmas ads go, Oh, that's really interesting. I I learned something new about making a Christmas ad and will you help us next year sort of thing. So almost showcasing what good looks like or something to give people kind of, you know, valuable content that might be doing something similar. And then perhaps then offering some sort of diagnosis or scoring mechanism so that they can then make that that really relevant to them for them to really say, oh, I thought our Christmas ads were great, but actually there's now I get the reason why we haven't made John's top 10 list. So giving people something helpful to work with um, at this stage because they're trying to figure out what yeah. they want to do. And it's lovely. It creates a bit of competition. Everyone loves everyone. Everyone loves a score, a leaderboard and, and awards or something like that. So it plays yeah, to... Or, yeah, or it can help you. So one of the examples that I gave in the book is, this is uh, when I was at Thomson Reuters, piece of regulation coming in. And yeah, we knew from the events that we were doing with regulators and others that people didn't know how ready they needed to be in order to hit the regulation in two years. So there what we did is we took, you know, a whole list load of companies who didn't get fined very often, had big compliance departments. We surveyed their readiness, packaged it up, put a digital diagnostic on the front so that people who were in a similar position could go and rank themselves against kind of the best um, and go to their board to get more funding to be able to do certain things. And we were able to be quite precise about how we in Thomson Reuters could help with some of those challenges. So yes, there's a competitive element or it can just be very, very helpful for somebody internal to be able to make a business case in a different way to attract funding, which in turn will be helpful yeah. for you. The bit I learned actually that I'm going to take away is the case study bit. Here's how we helped this company in this situation, that sort of thing. I think yeah. that was really quite powerful. And I think that B2B companies aren't always very good at talking about how they've approached problems. Mm. They're quite good talking about it on the back end once you've got the result. But actually what's quite interesting for people at this stage is, well, how did you start to think about it? And how did you go about it? And what type of team did you put together? So thinking about a kind of case study that's rooted in approach rather than outcomes can be really helpful. Well, the nice reframing for me when I thought about this was rather than just say, this is what we do, go, this is how we help someone in this situation. Or and this then is how we thought about it. Yeah. And then you can see yourself. As a customer, you can go, oh yeah, well, we, oh we got that problem too. Yeah, you know? that's my situation. <laughs> yes, How did you know? I need some help. You know, <laughs> which really okay, Hunter. So next one down here. So this is more when you're engaging, actually actively seeking out the the solution. Um, what kind of tactics would play in at this stage? So here people kind of know what they want to buy. So what you need to do is to make sure that your materials are deeply rooted into what you know about the problems associated with why they even got to this point in the first place. And so it's kind of unacceptable for you to have a website that has lackluster content, that doesn't have clear value propositions rooted into client insights. This is the place where people are going to start to come into your environment. They'll start to come to your events. They'll start to come to your website. They will be responsive to a bit of outreach, perhaps as long as it's not a cold call email. And so thinking about, okay, if somebody's coming and they're coming into our environment, there is an intent to buy there or an intent to learn. And so making sure that you are very thoughtful about A, why are they coming? How do we make sure that our materials are relevant and interesting? But what's the next best thing you want them to do? Because at this point, you could really lose somebody because if you don't follow up and through the event or you haven't been thoughtful about what they might look at next on the website, you're kind of coming off as somebody who's not really going to help them in the work. So it's a pretty precarious one, this one, because you could really lose your opportunity to be in the game at all at this point. And this is the bit where it's actually really very owned by marketing. And yet somehow we kind of think that sales owns this bit. So, um, you know, this is your point to make that, like, this is the part of the, the experience where you can use your existing client information to make it feel like you really deeply understand what the problem is that they're trying to to wrestle with. Now, I love this. And speedy response is really important. You want people to feel that they care. And and like you say, the appropriateness of response as well to go, oh, I noticed, oh, for, our, for our case, be, oh, I noticed you just launched this ad over here. And by the way, here's, here's some data we got on, on that particular category or, you know, so they go, oh, brilliant, you know, already adding value before you've even talked. Before you've even started, because you are now at this point setting your company's reputation in their minds. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about brand and reputation and purpose, but this is really where marketing, I, I kind of a bit controversial in the book at the end, because I sort of say, you know, I think the best performing companies in the future, and I think perhaps you agree, like are those that where marketing sets the experience and everyone else services it. And this is what you're doing in this stage. 100%. 100% totally agree with you. And then active buyers. So we're now, we're now in discussions, in conversations, a bit, bit going back a bit to the, what we talked about earlier with, in terms of the pitch process, isn't it? Is asking the right questions, showing up with the right people, you know, servicing in the right kind of way. 
And also, I think you've also got a kind of secondary audience here, people who are supporting that discussion. So I've talked about it before, procurement, finance, perhaps technology, IT might come into it. And they'll be using your channels, your non-sales channels to learn more about you and how much of your content is targeted towards that secondary, second order buyer. Sometimes they can be very, very important. They can make or break whether you're going to win the deal or not. Um, but they're not always serviced particularly well. Um, and that's really where the marketing channels can really supplement what you're doing in sales. The other thing that I would say is that if the sales team needs a lot of marketing support and help here, then there's a big opportunity cost because it is expensive. And so, you know, you have to think about, well, what's the opportunity cost off the other parts of the um, journey that you're not servicing? And at PwC, you'd have a pitch support team, wouldn't you, as well, in, in that particular stage that's doing all the decks and the, the support things for you? Yeah, and lots of professional services have that. So, you know, parts of the organization that are helping our account teams, you know, really tell the story clearly, make sure that they're, you know, really thoughtful about the messages that they want to land. Um, so because it's such an important part of the buying process. Now, one of the things that that, that, that struck me about about your book and the, and, the, and the phases is I wasn't expecting the last phase, actually, because in my head, I was thinking marketing's role is to get you to the transaction, right? It's demand generate, gets the point of conversion, then the sales team take it from there and uh, run off into the sunset and happy marriage forever, all that kind of stuff, right? But actually, you you, you helpfully point out that there's a, a big role for marketing in the client stage once you've, you know, converted the new client. Yeah, and I think that for me, that's on two different levels. Firstly, with the people who bought the services, um, often you want to build loyalty. Um, once you've won the deal, like the, as I said before, the competitors are going to come after them and building lo- loyalty, um, creating advocates within that client because that will help you with other things. I talked before about how important peer feedback, case studies, examples of where you've done it before, that all comes from that existing client base. So it can help you a lot to drive the loyalty there. And of course, you've spent so much time and energy winning it. Why would you want to lose it, right? And then the other sort of thing that marketing can do uh, within existing clients is to look at what is your share of wallet. So if you sell lots of different things, are you really giving the client enough value from all of the things that they could be buying from you? And a good way of working out whether or not you should be putting marketing dollars into this part of the experience would be you look across all the services that you have and the amount of services that your top clients could buy from you, how, what percentage of them are buying? So I remember in a previous role, we looked at that and only 8% of our top clients were buying a full suite of the things that they could buy from us. Well, I mean, that's your, that's your next three years growth right there, right? And so thinking about that and thinking about actually unlocking some of that might be more helpful in terms of building that relationship than uh, than trying to find lots of new customers. And we found the same, actually, that like often with some of our customers, they just don't know what we do. And it's like this really stupidly simple thing of just going, oh, by the way, we also do this. And they, they already know that they like you and they can work with you. So you ha- should have a totally unfair advantage when you look at Share of Wallet. And, you know, wh- one of the things that I would observe is, you know, if you're in professional services and you're losing big deals to your competitors within one of your big existing clients, that feels like a real shame because you already know you can work with them. You already know that you've got a good cultural alignment. You already know you've got advocates inside uh, and you've already understood each other's idiosyncrasies. So why wouldn't they choose you first? You should have that unfair advantage for sure. So let, let, let's end on a uh, sorry to ask a question that I've asked a lot of people, but everyone seems to be asked, talking about it at the moment. AI. How do you think AI is going to transform B2B marketing? Well, do you think it will? And if you think it will, how will it benefit B2B marketing? So I am so excited. I cannot wait to unleash the power of AI into our organization. And I think that's on a number of different levels. So I talked before about how much content it takes. uh, And you remarked on the fact that the output isn't always very interesting. And that's because you're having to do so much. It's actually really hard for any human being. And also, we also talked about, you know, how do you be there at the moment that John wants to talk to somebody? I mean, almost impossible to predict. So you have to be always on to a very complicated set of buyers over a number of years. It's not possible to produce excellent content that's highly relevant and highly responsive through a group of even the best human beings. So AI will help that transform that radically. Um, And what that means is that B2B companies can become really excitingly relevant and helpful to their buyers in the moment that their buyers need them in a way that we've never seen before. And I actually think that the creativity use case in B2B is a very exciting and interesting one uh, for AI as we start to shape what we want to do. So I'm extremely excited about that. Um, because I think we'll be able to add disproportionate value to buyers and clients. I also, within complicated B2B environments, 
being able to find exactly the right proof point case study, like AI is going to be brilliant at all of that KX, which is going to be phenomenal. And we're going to be able to learn so much about where the buyer's minds are. If you start to apply responsiveness and behavioral science and expertise into that mix, you're going to be able to create marketing experiences that are genuinely worthy of the type of money that's being spent in B2B. Pretty excited about that. And I've talked about how I believe that marketing will really set the stage for the experience uh, going forward in B2B. Um, and then, you know, lastly, you know, people have talked a bit about productivity um, and you have to be a bit kind of careful about that. But if I look at my team and the time that we still spend with inefficient processes, the brilliant talent that I have in my team, that's, you know, unfortunately still having to do a lot of administration. And, and we tend to have smaller teams in B2B. We tend to have perhaps more process, uh, depending on the nature of the business that you're in. So suddenly I can unlock the power of my team in a completely new way, which I'm also excited about. So for me, it's about being able to be much more highly relevant, much more predictive, much more creative and unlock capacity in my team of the like that we've not seen before. Um, and that's very exciting. That is exciting. And it's great to have such a positive view of AI as well. I, I think, you know, people are struggling with the threat. Uh, is it going to take our jobs and the, the slightly sinister side? But that's a really great articulation of how it could actually make our jobs better. Well, and it's funny because every time there's been new technology, always the first worry. And this is for all times been, it's going to take our jobs. And you know what? Often it does. But then it unlocks hundreds of new jobs. Exactly, yeah. Um, and what's also interesting is that with the rise of technology, it's quite funny if you ever read anything from like the 1950s, they're like, oh yeah, all this technology will happen and we'll all just sit around all day. Yeah, we'll just be doing nothing because like the machine yeah. will take the load. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel busier than I'm I ever have. I know, I'm, I'm still waiting for that moment <laughs> where I go, yeah, You and I, I just sitting, I having a gin and tonic and, exactly. uh, and let the machine take indeed, the load. Indeed, indeed. One day, I think one day. Unlikely. If we could invent that, that'd be kind of handy. It's <laughs> there we go. Well, listen, that's our brief for next time. There we go. Thank you so much. It's been Thank a pleasure you. having you. been wonderful to be here. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks for listening to the Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I got so much out of it. Now, if you never want to miss an episode again, please, please, please go and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button now. If you want to follow me, you can do that over at Uncensored CMO on Twitter or on LinkedIn, where I'm under my normal name, John Evans. Thanks so much for watching and listening. See you next time.